This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. Bob Costas was already working at the network when he was still in his 20s and would soon reach the very top of his profession. He's won numerous Emmy Awards. He's won the Baseball Hall of Fame Ford Frick Award for announcers. And he's announced and hosted just about every major sporting event. The World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA Playoffs, Horse Racing's Triple Crown, and the Olympics. And he successfully ventured beyond the world of sports with his old NBC show Later with Bob Costas and his current show on HBO, Back on the Record with Bob Costas. His place in broadcasting led to friendships with some of the sports heroes of his youth. Costas gave the eulogy at the 1995 funeral of Mickey Mantle. We'll get to those stories, but first, through the years he announced or hosted thousands of games. In Chicago, he is remembered for one. Early on, one game is often cited. It's the Sandberg game. In I know we are going, yeah. Yeah, it's the Cubs and the Cardinals. It's Wrigley. It's the game of the week when the game of the week was the game of the week. Obviously, as you're doing the game, you're concentrating on the game. But is there a moment or not even just a moment, but a, a night in the aftermath of that game when it you kind of sit are allowed to sit back and have a moment to sit back and think it happened. You know, well, I, you I, know, I imaged it all these years ago and look at this. I'm at Wrigley. This great player had this iconic day. It happened. I'm reminded of it constantly. And even within the last few years, there have been documentaries done about that one game. Uh, and every time the anniversary of it comes up, June 23rd, uh, at least in Chicago, there'll be a five to 10 minute piece on the local stations about the game. And as I said, there have been at least two full blown documentaries that I'm familiar with about that game. And then naturally, they they want to talk to me and to Tony Kubek since we were the broadcasters uh, on the game. And you said it in introducing this topic, Bud. That was when the game of the week was the game of the week. This was the game where if you lived in Tacoma and the Dodgers and Reds were in a tight pennant race and Fernando Valenzuela was going to be pitching and facing Johnny Bench, you didn't mow the lawn for those two and a half to three hours. That was the game you watched. That was the truly the game of the week for most of the country. The, the cable superstations, one of which was WGN, the Cubs station, and the other WTBS in Atlanta, for the Braves, they had just come into being. So they had the beginnings of national followings. But for the most part, people could only follow their local team. And most teams did not do the majority of their games on television. The majority of local baseball was on the radio. So the idea of a national broadcast with Kurt Gowdy or Joe Garagiola or Jim Simpson and, of course, Tony Kubak and Vin Scully later paired with Joe Garagiola and then some kid named Bob Costas, this was a whole different thing than the world now, where if you don't see one game, you can see another one anytime you want. Uh, so it had a certain center stage quality to it. And we did a disproportionate number of Red Sox and Cubs games because they played so many Saturday afternoon games. And of course, Fenway and Wrigley were splendid settings. So here it is, the Cardinals against the Cubs. It's a rivalry as it is. 
you go to Wrigley and they're playing the Cardinals, there's always a lot of red in the stands. There's always a lot of blue in the stands at Bush Stadium. A friendlier rival than Giants, Dodgers, and Yankees, Red Sox, not just because of the Midwestern nature, but because it's seldom been the case that the Cubs and Cardinals were vying for first place tooth and nail in the same season. They've very rarely been at the top of the standings simultaneously. So here it is, 1984, and it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon at Wrigley, and the Cubs are just beginning to assert themselves as a contender, seemingly from out of nowhere. And Ryan Sandberg is beginning to assert himself as a star player. And then this game happens just out of the blue. The Cardinals are leading nine to three. The Cubs come back. They pulled it within nine, eight. Sandberg hits a homer off Bruce Suter to open up the ninth inning and tie at nine, nine. Willie McGee, who hit for the cycle in the game, doubles home a run and then scores what looked like an insurance run in extra innings. And then with two out and nobody on in the bottom half, Bob Dernier draws a walk, and that brings Sandberg up again. He's already got four hits, one of them a home run, and Suter is still pitching, which tells you how different it is. He came in in the seventh. He's still in the game in the tenth. And Sandberg again homers to almost the same spot in the left center field bleachers. And the place is going berserk. The game is now tied 11-11, to and eventually the Cubs win it 12-11. to And I can only think of one other regular season game that has a name, and that would be the Pine Tar game, mm-hmm. the George Brett game where he went berserk after the umpires ruled that he was out and they temporarily nullified a home run because of too much Pine Tar too high on the bat. But this game is known in Chicago and beyond as the Sandberg game. And for years and years, bud, and this is just good fortune, right place at the right time. You know, I guess I didn't mess it up and there might have been a a few good calls. So people remember them. Uh, But I just happen to be there and along for the ride, especially when I'm in Chicago. It doesn't happen as often now because we're so many years removed, but it still happens. And it used to happen a whole lot. I, I could be walking down the street or having dinner someplace in Chicago. And a fan, a fellow diner there would say, hey, Bob, the Sandberg game. That's all I have to say, the Sandberg game. And it would bring a smile and everybody knew what you were talking about. And for Ryan himself, every conversation with me and Ryan Sandberg begins with him reminding me as if I need to be reminded about that game, which is the signature game of a Hall of Fame career. It established him on that day because of the audience the size of the audience, that game got a higher rating on a Saturday afternoon in June than some, and I regret to say this, than some World Series games in prime time get now. That game resonated throughout baseball, and it just shows you how things have changed. I am quite certain that there have been many games in the last two or three years that if you just look at the particulars, were every bit as incredible as that game, but they didn't have the same center stage quality as that game had. And it marked him as an MVP candidate. He did win the MVP. The Cubs came within a game of making it to the World Series. The movie The Natural had come out that spring. And I think one of the things I said was, this may be the real Roy Hobbs, because this is really cinematic, the way this thing is is playing out. And as I recall, it was another point in the game where I said, You know, Tony, this has a timeless quality to it. It's 1984, 
but it could just as well be 1954. And the only difference is the game is in color instead of in black and white because you're at Wrigley Field. Day games only at that time. It had a classic quality to it. And it shows you what sports can be, especially baseball. Here we are close to 40 years later and still talking about it. Bob, you're known for a long time as a guy who will offer really uh, thoughtful opinions on the world of sports and the sports issues beyond the field of play. Do you recall as you're creating this career, a specific time or a general time where you started to feel more comfortable with addressing those issues on air? Well, I think you have to have some standing. And eventually I had that with the network, but you also have to have an inclination to do it. I bristle, however, when some people say, oh, you know, I used to really like him, but then he made everything political. That's ridiculous. Uh, I don't suggest that anybody do this, but if you sat there with a stopwatch and went over all the broadcasts, hosting or play-by-play that I've done, either over my entire career or over the last 10 years when people think I've been more issue-oriented, I guarantee you that 99% of it has absolutely nothing to do, not only with politics, but even with sports issues. It's the game. It's the event. But I've always felt that you have to acknowledge the elephants in the room, especially if you have the kind of role that I've often had. The role of the host of the Olympics is different than the role of the person who's calling the track and field. It's not necessarily more important, but it's a different role. And it's part of your job to provide an overview, never at the expense of the drama and theater of the action, but in appropriate places, done judiciously, that's what you should do. And if you're calling a baseball game in the 1990s, and there's a cloud of the possibility of work stoppage hanging over everything, or all of a sudden, people who followed baseball are trying not to acknowledge what's right in front of them, which is, wait a minute, how is it all of a sudden that guys are hitting opposite field broken bat home runs that go 400 feet. How is it possible that guys who previously never topped 19 homers are hitting 45 and 50 homers? How is it possible that not only is Barry Bonds, who's a great player, or Mark McGuire, who is a great slugger, not only are they doing the sort of things you would expect from Hall of Fame players, but they're doing things that statistically dwarf what Babe Ruth ever did in a different era, hitting a home run once every six and a half or seven times at bat. It's part of your job, I think, as I define it, to acknowledge those things. Otherwise, I think you lose the trust of the audience. Now, not every broadcaster does that. And there are a lot of splendid broadcasters who just do it their way. And I have no criticism of them. But that isn't me. It might seem like an illogical question, but uh, you, know, you, you create this career and it keeps on. You keep on creating the career hosting later with Bob Costas, a mm -hmm. terrific show then and still now when watching it on YouTube. It's got a second life now. It's great. YouTube. And the many Olympic games that you hosted along the way. So you're an established network guy at that point. Mm -hmm. um, as you led up to those two endeavors later and also doing the Olympic games, is there any element of doubt that you have to deal with? Any wondering of, okay, I've done 
uh, tons of play-by-play and sports yeah. hosting. Can I, can I do this as well? Yes. I had uh, some trepidation when Dick Ebersol tapped me to host later. He created the show with me in mind, and I had never thought of myself in that role. Uh, but I guess he was right because I took to it. But at the beginning, you always feel as if you have to prove something. And that usually leads to you doing uh, not as good a job as you ultimately do if you become comfortable and somewhat more secure. So I think it took a couple of months of doing the late night show and really some good response, even though I wasn't as good at the start as I'd like to think I became shortly thereafter. Uh, There was some good, uh, encouraging response. And then I kind of settled into it and got the hang of it. With the Olympics, I had been the late night host in 1988 in Korea. Brian Gumbel had been the primetime host. And then again, Dick Ebersol decided I should be the primetime host in Barcelona in 1992. And I realized the reputation uh, and the prestige associated with Jim McKay, the longtime ABC Olympics host. And I didn't know if I could measure up to that. Although one thing I think that has always helped me I think you could admire other broadcasters and you should take what you can from them, but you should never copy another broadcaster. You have to be yourself. And you, it doesn't really help to compare yourself to other broadcasters, at least not directly, because we all operate under different circumstances at different times, different dynamics at work. But still, I knew that the Olympics were a different animal than doing a baseball game or a basketball game or, or hosting in the studio, a highlight show that the Olympics are an entirely different thing. They're a cultural panorama. They're a travel log. Inevitably, you know, you talk about a willingness to acknowledge things. How can you do an Olympics from Sochi, Russia, and not at least acknowledge the political dynamics at work there? The IOC is not apolitical, even though they try to pretend that they are. So again, I'm not going to address those things at the expense of the athletes or the competition, but there are periods of time within the many, many hours of Olympic broadcasting where you have a moment to do a short essay or to conduct an interview uh, with someone who's at the center of these issues. And even if other people wouldn't go there, I always felt as if those things should be done as if it was meet the press. You should do it in a journalistic fashion. And I think that without overstating my own importance, the audience began to expect something different in that regard from me than they might have expected from other sportscasters whom they admired for other reasons. But all that stuff eventually came for me. In 1992, when I sat down in Barcelona for my first stint as the primetime host, I was just hoping that... I wouldn't mess it up. I was just hoping to mix sports. I was just hoping to par the hole. I didn't uh, think I could birdie it, but things turned out pretty well. So on that note, uh, can I ask you to repeat, no pressure here, can I ask Mm -hmm. you to repeat what I consider the most clever line I've ever heard in the history of American broadcasting? No pressure. Yeah. 2004 opening ceremony at Athens and uh, the subject of Oedipus comes up. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, I don't know if I can repeat it verbatim, um, but 
Katie Couric was co-hosting the opening ceremony with me. And by the way, bud, the opening ceremony is just a beast. <laughs> if anybody has ever figured out the right way to do it, that would please the entire disparate audience, please contact me immediately, even though I'm done with it. Even though I've done a dozen Olympics and that's the end of it, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. Because you know, I always used to joke that it, it was half like United Nations Assembly meeting and half Cirque du Soleil. I used to joke that it should be hosted by Kofi Annan and Mary Hart because I have no idea exactly what the right tone is. And if you try to add a little levity, some people who think it should all be like church, they're going to get upset. If you're not somber enough or you're not flippant enough, then some people who look at it cynically, you're never going to please everybody. So I don't know if I ever exactly struck the right tone, but you have to be yourself. So it's the Olympics are in Athens in 2004, birthplace of the Olympic Games. And part of the opening ceremony is a tribute to Greek mythology and Zeus is there and all the others. Um, and Oedipus then is represented. And I turned to Katie and I said, Katie, as you'll recall, Oedipus is the figure from Greek mythology who murdered his father and married his mother, a sequence of events that seldom turns out well. Was that it? That's it. I had not been asked to recall that. I'm surprised I got it right because what is it, 17 years ago? I hadn't really thought about it. But it's beautiful. It's, it it, it's perfect because, yeah, <laughs> how could you not? It's just, it's perfect. I'm curious. It's perfect. That's all I'm going to say. It's perfect. You know, but you, you've led me down uh, this bit of memory lane. I will not apologize for occasionally injecting a little bit of levity, brevity with it, but levity into the opening ceremony. The delegation from Brunei came in. I think it was in Atlanta in 96. And, you know, some delegations are very large, depending upon the size of the nation and how competitive they are athletically. You could have 100 or more competitors and others are smaller. And the delegation from Brunei had eight people, none of whom was an athlete. They were all just poobahs from, I don't know, the Sultan of Brunei's royal court or whoever they were. And they come proudly marching in, carrying the flag. And I turned to Dick Enberg and I said, evidently here, hoping to meddle in the buffet category. <laughs> so, you, know, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Think of it this way, bud. If you and I were sitting having a couple of beers and we're watching somebody else do the opening ceremony, there might be times when you are actually struck by the majesty of it and how deeply moving some of it is. Certainly when Muhammad Ali lit the, lit the torch uh, in Atlanta in 96 and many other times when you just get goosebumps or even get tears in your eyes because it's so moving and so meaningful to the host city and to the host nation. But some of it is just freaking goofy, you know? <laughs> and, if, and if you can't acknowledge that, there's some portion of the audience out there saying, hey, I think this is crazy. Why don't they think it's crazy? I believe it's the late, great Nora Ephron who said, it's all material. <laughs> That's right. It's all material. From the outside, it seems like your career is a steady rise from uh, Syracuse to KMOX 
mm-hmm. in those early years of doing the ABA and then some network work and then a lot of network work. And then, as we've mentioned, Major League Baseball and, and the other sports and the NBA and the NFL and the Olympics and later. And now uh, a new show continuing on with HBO or, or uh, another show with HBO, I should say. From the outside, again, it seems like a steady rise. But internally, were there ever hills and valleys to deal with? I've had a blessed career. I've been so fortunate in so many ways. So never anything that fits the description you just laid out. But were there times where I was disappointed? Yeah, because I think if you have a mind of your own, and have some independent thoughts, even as much as you respect and appreciate the people you're working for and with, even as you're mindful of the gratitude you feel for those who have been part at the executive level or the production level of making your career what it has been and how much you've enjoyed that collaboration. There are going to be times when your notions of what is the best approach are going to butt up against theirs. And ultimately, even the person, no matter who it is, Joe Buck now, Mike Tirico, Jim Nance, whoever is kind of the face of a network, no matter how valued they are, ultimately, they aren't the boss. They can hope to have influence. They can hope to maybe convince the executive producer or the producer of the broadcast that this is the way we should do it, but it isn't a matter of snapping your fingers. You know, I was always amused when people thought that the host of the Olympics programs the Olympics. <laughs> not once, not once out of all those hundreds of hours did I ever decide, you know what, let's leave the swimming and go to the gymnastics. Let's emphasize this instead of that. I played the hand I was dealt as well as I could, and I could be myself when they asked me to interview somebody or said, here, take two minutes and wrap this up. Yeah, that was me. But in terms of the overall direction of the broadcast, we're going to delay this and show that that's completely out of the host's hands, no matter who the host is. But there were times when I felt frustration because I always felt that there should be a little bit more of a journalistic element. In fairness, NBC did allow me that to a greater extent than other networks may have allowed their guy. But there were times when I felt that, and it's inevitable, that a network wants to protect its properties more than they want to protect the credibility of even whoever their top person is. Not just me, it could be anybody. So, Was NBC concerned about the uh, tender feelings of the the behemoth of sports and television, the NFL? Were they more concerned about that than about journalism? Yeah, sometimes. Were they more concerned about not ruffling the feathers of the IOC as opposed to something that I felt it was essential to say or questions I thought were essential to ask? Yeah. And so that could create some tension. But never, at least from my, from my angle, never anger or disrespect. I'm grateful to and appreciative of and respect everyone with whom I work. And I think it's just inevitable. If you have thinking people who are good at what they do, there are going to be times when there are disagreements. 
There's going to be times when the quarterback is going to have a disagreement with the head coach, but the head coach has the final say. There's announcing games and hosting events, and then there is giving the eulogy of the man who was your guy growing up, yeah, Mickey Mantle. You giving the eulogy in 1995, and I recall interviewing you shortly thereafter. We're now decades uh, beyond that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if your thoughts about that day and what it meant to you, have they changed through the years? No, not really. My thought was that I had to do justice to it for his family, for all the people, teammates, baseball people, but the millions of baseball fans who grew up during that era and for whom Mickey Mantle was one of, or maybe for some of them, the symbol of the game. So I was trying to evoke that era that he represented. I was also trying to acknowledge in as tender a way as possible the failings and shortcomings which he himself was so quick to talk about. And I had known Mickey well in the last few years of his life. So I was aware that he himself, if he, if he was asked to, to write the story of his own life, would have emphasized some of those shortcomings and flaws. But at the same time, why did we care about him so much? Because there was so much that was redeeming and wonderful about him. We're all complex, some more than others. And Mickey was a combination of some beautiful and wonderful qualities and also some anguish and conflict and regret over, over things he could have done better, both as a ball player and as a person. And so my objective was to try and thread that needle. And his family felt good about it in the aftermath, which is what mattered most to me. This was back uh, right at the cusp of when people were still writing letters. By five or six years later, uh, email had taken over and you wouldn't get as many actual letters. But I got nearly 10,000 letters from around the country after the, the Mantle eulogy. And they were so touching and so appreciative. And one of the themes was this. <clears throat> I grew up in Detroit. So Al Kaline was my guy. Or I grew up in Chicago, same era. Ernie Banks was my guy, but I knew what you were talking about. And so when I read those letters, that was another indication to me that I'd at least gotten close to what I'd intended because it resonated not just with Yankee fans, but with, with baseball fans who had a feeling for what that era was about. I've asked some dumb questions in my time, and you can add this one tonight. You can. Well, you can add this one to the list. Uh, It seems almost beyond crazy to ask this, considering the career that you've had. But early on, before perhaps you go to Syracuse, was there even the slightest notion of a plan B? Well, my mom always said that I should be a lawyer. But I think her idea of a lawyer was watching Perry Mason on TV giving the closing argument, not somebody who does corporate law or something and is just kind of <laughs> stuck in the office till the wee hours. So she thought, and this tied in, I guess, to some verbal facility that I could, that I could do a good job making my case in a courtroom. My dad, who was a big sports fan um, and never 
live to see anything I did. He died when I was a senior in high school. So he never even heard the college broadcast that I did. He, for some reason, thought that I should major at Syracuse. I'd been accepted to Syracuse a month before he died, died suddenly of a heart attack. So thinking about going to Syracuse and I say, I'm going to major in public communications. And he said, why don't you major in criminology? What? (laughs) I don't know whether he thought I could be a latter day Elliot Ness or or what the heck he wanted me to be. But I think he misjudged his son in that moment. So the answer is there was no real plan B. And in fact, if I had been born a century or more before, before Marconi invented radio, before television, I might have wound up as a ward of the state because I'm pretty good at this one little thing and it's turned out okay for me. And there are dozens of things that almost anybody you know can do that I can't do at all. I am hopeless and helpless around the house. I'm just not good at things that 90% of the world is good at, but I'm pretty good at this one thing. And luckily it's something I enjoy. Bob Costas, still going strong after all of these years. You can see him on Back on the Record with Bob Costas on HBO, plus his work on MLB Network and as a contributor on CNN. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13. This episode was produced and created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me too. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.